This is the Bible reading for today. Um, it's from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, It's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people <clears throat> with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Then I heard the Lord asking, Whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am. Send me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. I just wanted to uh, have some of those who are at home do the Bible readings for us, just to remind us that we're not the only ones worshipping as part of the Billabong at this time. So uh, thanks, Greg, and I think it was Marilyn last week. Um, but uh, let's, as we, as we get into the Word this morning and um, open our hearts, let's pray. Father, thank you for your living and holy Word that speaks uh, directly to our uh, inmost spirit, that you... Uh, you have something for us this morning that is not just pages, words on a page from thousands of years ago, but something very personal, very uh, relevant, very um, important for us today in this moment, in this season of our lives. And we want to be open to that, Lord. We want to ask that you would speak uh, your, your living word, your rhema word by your spirit to us this morning through the Logos word, the scriptures. And we thank you so much that you are gracious to do that, to relate with us, to have communion with us, God, that we would know you personally. And so we open our hearts this morning to you, to your word for us, what you would want to say in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we uh, began a study in the book of Isaiah and uh, finished that morning with uh, an opportunity to burn our idols, uh, to, that steal our trust, to actually take on a piece of paper something that is, uh, it steals, we go to it instead of God for provision or for whatever, and, um, and we, we want to lay those things down. And so some of you wrote things on a piece of paper, burnt them outside afterwards. Uh, this morning, what I want to do is continue with a focus on the first of two major sections in Isaiah, it's sort of two big parts, um, chapter 31, sorry, 1 to 39, and then 40 to 66, if we could have that next slide, um, uh, should, should be there. Um, and this first section, it finishes, uh, have we got that next slide? Money, yep, uh, nope. At the beginning... <laughs> oh, 
I'll, I'll leave those guys to it. Hey, Micah, how are you going? I'm preaching right now. <laughs> Love you. <laughs> uh, no, that's not it. That's fine. It's the, one of the beginning slides back near the Bible reading. Uh, there's two sections, chapters 1 to 39 and 40 to 66, and we have these two things. There we go, judgment and hope. Um, in the first section, and then the announcement of hope. Because at the beginning of cha- at the end of chapter 39, we see kind of the the, the middle part, the, the the climax of the whole book, which is where uh, Isaiah prophesies about the fall of Jerusalem into exile, and the people going into exile uh, with the in Babylonian captivity. Um, then, in the last part, it focuses more on the future hope that's going to come through Jesus. What you um, find when you read through this first section, 1 to 39, which is what I'm going to focus on for a little while, uh, and and today in particular, is um, that there's a whole range of literary styles. I encourage you to have a read through this. It doesn't actually take as long. At first, you kind of go, oh man, this is is a long read, but it's not actually that uh, that long. But it is pretty complex, and it seems a bit all over the place. There's poetry, and there's retelling of history, and then there's kind of a prophetic declaration, then there's these, woe this, woe that. It seems a bit all over the place, but you can break it down a little bit and look at it this way, that chapters 1 to 12 is this vision of judgment and hope for Jerusalem. Uh, Next slide. And then chapters 13 to 27 is not just a judgment and hope for Jerusalem, but judgment and hope for the nations, broader than Jerusalem. And then it goes in the last little bit to the rise and fall of Jerusalem. There's this recurring theme and imagery where, first of all, Isaiah is speaking of um, the judgment of the old Jerusalem. So it's the old Jerusalem's going to fall, and then the hope is that the new Jerusalem will come in. Then you've got the, uh, the, the hope, sorry, the, the, the judgment upon the nations, and he talks of the lofty city, which is imagery for, um, or, or represents all of God, all people around the world who are in rebellion to God. So we go from the judgment of the lofty city to the new city. So old Jerusalem, new Jerusalem, lofty city, new city. Um, and that new city will have no more suffering. Uh, it will be replaced, a brand new creation, if you like. Over and over, there's this message that those whose hearts are turned from God will experience his judgment so that they may repent. Uh, so if they do repent, there will be hope of forgiveness, there will be hope of restoration and hope of healing. And there's some key themes that occur, sorry, some key scenes that occur along the way that point out where this hope is coming from, or rather who this hope lies in. And of course, we might know that it's all pointing to Jesus. It's all pointing to the Messiah, Jesus, Emmanuel. Um, I'm going to take a minute just to, um, to, to talk a little bit about that, about that in all the places we see it. Um, but the image on the slides that's um, this, this uh, artwork uh, behind is, is, a, is depicting the key scene in chapter 6. That, we just, that Greg just read. Isaiah's vision in the temple, of the temple, where angels surround God and they're shouting, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah is terrified because he thinks that being this close to God, being really uh, 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 this, in this close vicinity to a holy God is going to destroy him. And he knows this would be the case from, from uh, you know, history before him and those who have come close to God's presence like this. But instead, a burning coal which represents the holiness of God, comes and touches him. You can see it sort of in the picture there. This cult touches him and it purifies Isaiah. 
And this is a picture of how Jesus, who is called Emmanuel, God with us, will purify us, will make us righteous when he comes near and he touches us. But Isaiah responds to God's holiness with repentance. So we see this, this principle here. God's holiness, when met with human repentance and humility before him, it brings about righteousness, a transformation to righteousness, to worthiness before God. And that's the picture we see. And it's a picture of the gospel. And this is the personal and transformative effect of God's holy presence in our lives. Um, Sarah asked the question the other day. that uh, I said, what are you looking forward to about Isaiah? How does God's holiness affect us on a personal level? Something like that, right, Sarah? And, and I think this is the start of the answer to that question, that ultimately when God comes holy, it leads us to, to repentance when we encounter his holiness. And that brings about righteousness. All through these sections, there's this allusion to or, or a pointing to Jesus, a pointing towards the Messiah. In the previous chapter, and I just want to give you a little bit of a picture of this in a few different parts. Um, starting with the previous chapter, chapter 5, he sings a song, Isaiah, about Israel, the Lord's vineyard, uh, the people that God cares for, tended to, nurtured. Um, but unfortunately, this vineyard, these people are producing bad grapes. And so God says, I'll make it a place where the vines are not pruned and the ground is not hoed, a place overgrown with briars and thorns. I'll command the clouds to drop no rain on it. And we learned last month about how ultimately God's plan was to replace the vine, replace the vineyard. John chapter 15, right? Jesus says, I am the vine. And he's the new vine replacing Israel as the source, the vine. Isaiah then declares how God's judgment will actually cut Israel or Judah down to a stump, that they'll be so decimated down to like a stump. But then a seed and then a new shoot will come from the stump. And this new shoot is Jesus. He's going to come from the line of David, the tribe of Judah or the remains of of it, And we read, he will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. So he's the vine, he's this seed, he's the rock that would cause people to stumble. And this here, this passage is referring to the Lord Almighty. But of course, in the New Testament, it's Jesus, 1 Peter 2.8. And then we read the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned, Isaiah 9.2. Jesus again, for unto us a child is born, to, uh, uh, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. A wonderful passage that um, Andy Hogarth walked us through last December, all about Jesus. And I could go on. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is the hope that any judgment or any suffering or discipline or punishment from God is meant to lead us towards. There's nothing else ultimately other than this hope in Jesus. Because if there's anything we learn from the Old Testament, it's this. All the plans... All the plans to get God's people to turn their heart towards him, they ultimately failed. They didn't have a lasting impact. Only one plan was ever going to work in the long run. And that was the only real plan, the only uh, successful plan in the first place. And that plan is Jesus. Everything else, 
Every other time God turned the hearts around and, and saved them, it was all actually just pointing to Jesus. The exodus, the exile, everything is pointing to Jesus. From Genesis to Malachi, all pointing to him. Remember though, and just sort of park that thought in mind, it's all pointing to Jesus. He, he is the hope. There's nothing else in really. Everything else is just pointing to that. But remember this, that Isaiah is speaking 700 years before Jesus. How do you feel when, when there's um, a, a hope of something, something you, you're looking towards, but then you hear, but then, then you go, you know what, it's going to come in 700 years. Anybody know anyone who's lived 700 years? It's a long time. That's generations and generations down the track. Whenever God's judgment led people to repentance, here's the thing. There was a, rarely was there an immediate or even quick salvation or, or protection from enemies or oppressors or blessing that came. Whenever the people turned to God, it didn't just change things immediately. The hope didn't just kick in like that. Throughout the Old Testament, there was always time involved. There was always time involved between hearts turning and God restoring them with his presence and his forgiveness. And in this case, for them, it was going to be 700 years. Years, even when it wasn't talking about Jesus, even when it was some other restoration or hope or of salvation, there was time, long time involved. This is what spoke to me this week, um, really quite strongly, as I waded through 39 chapters of Isaiah on Monday morning, that God does respond with grace. He does respond with mercy and forgiveness. He does respond with healing and restoration in our lives when we turn to Him in repentance, like. For example, burning those idols last week, taking those things we turned to him, saying, God, I'm just handing it over to you. Take it out of my hands, Lord God. When we do that, he does respond, but the visible effects, the tangible effects, God coming in and changing things for the better because of that, the increased presence of God in our lives, it's never immediate. It's never quick. We never hand something over to God and turn to him, and then all of a sudden we see the resulting change. It can take a really, really long time. That's why it's judgment that leads to repentance and hope, not judgment that leads to repentance and immediately make your life better. Hope. Hope towards something that God's going to do. And the coal coming and touching Isaiah and purifying him, it's a picture of salvation. Yes, it's a picture of salvation through repentance, and it's instant and complete. That's called justification. Right, that's the theological word for instantaneous being made right with God. But sanctification, another theological word, being made righteous, being made right into right living, conformed into his image over time, that takes a lifetime or more. The presence of God in our lives, transforming us, fulfilling us, bringing us joy and abundance, actually experiencing the fullness of that abundant life takes a lot of time. And so I think that it's a specific kind of hope that God wants to develop into us. And that was the introduction to my sermon. Now here's the title. Patient hope. Don't worry, I'm not going to preach for another half now. Patient hope. How are you going with patience? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> how are you going with patience? That's a hard question, right? Oh, wow. How am I going with patience? Lord, give me patience and give it to me now. 
Right, something like parenting, I think, will teach us uh, patient hope. And oh, I think I forgot to put the video on the, um, on, on the... I think I airdropped the video. If you happen to, to see it, Martin, there's a video of me playing soccer with Micah. And um, something that parenting has taught me in this, in, in this area um, is patience. Because when we found out, Kerry and I found out that we were going to have a boy, one of the things I got excited about was, I'm going to have someone to kick the footy with. Now, I knew it would take a, a while before Micah would be able to kick the footy with me. I guess I didn't realise how long it would feel like before um, he would be somewhat near to my level and be able to kick the footy. So we started with, we've started with soccer, and he's getting pretty good at that. I did have a clip to show you of me him kicking the soccer ball. But, um, you know, it, it has taught me some level of patient hope. Sometimes I've forgotten about the hope that I have, that I'd be able to kick the footy with him because I just think, oh, this is, this is going to take a long time. Marriage, other relationships of, of substance will we'll teach you the same thing, right? Don't worry too much about the clip, guys. Um, we, 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 you realise that um, there's lots of, of time needed in, in, a, in a, a serious relationship to, you know, for understanding to develop, for healing maybe in things in your life that you bring into that relationship. <laughs> hey, go. good job. Yeah. Better late than never. So he's getting pretty good. Oh, um, not bad. I, it's just not yep, quite the same as you know kicking a footy with um, with, uh, Kick. with someone. Hey. <laughs> ah, patient hope, patience, patience. Luke. We will one day play king of the pack. <laughs> you too, Josiah. Yep, I'm teaching you soon. We learn this too, though, with God, not just in relationships, right? When we turn our heart toward him, when, when, we, when we burn an idol, we say, God, I'm letting go of that thing. Things don't just get better overnight. It's not just like, oh, this is, this is perfect. Now you've tr- turned that area of my life around. A patient daily transformation of our heart has just begun to take place when we start with that kind of decision to, to hand something over to God. Maybe you found that whatever you wrote on that piece of paper last week, if you were here uh, and you, you said, okay, I'm going I'm to burn that idol of my heart, that thing I turned to, maybe you found that this week, after you did that, after you made that decision, it was even harder to resist that thing and to trust God instead. Well, hang on a second. I thought, God, I've, I've given that thing over to you. Why is it drawing me even stronger now? One, it's the way the enemy works. Two, it's not just a one-time decision. Incredibly important to make those decisions, but it's a process. And it starts with a decision, but the daily choice. We need that patient hope over and over again. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years for the Israelites to see just the beginning of the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecies about Jesus. Even today, many people will say, well, look, it's been like, 2,000 and a bit years already. Come on, I mean, are we sure Jesus is coming back? Are we sure this hope we're holding on to is really worth still holding on to? But in the scheme of things, 2,000 years for God is nothing. 1,000 years like a day to him, a day is like a 1,000 years. Because God is incredibly patient. Incredibly patient. And if he wants his children, that's you and I, to bear his character... Patience is a fruit of the Spirit that, he, that I think he wants to develop in us. So how are you doing with patience? 
one way to, to think about that is do you tend to want immediate results out of investment that you make? Not just investment in, in finances, or something, but investment in your health, investment in, in any kind of hard work, intellect, investment in relationships in particular. Do you want the, 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 the fruit of that to be immediate or are you willing to wait? What about with God? Is your attitude kind of more like, God, I gave you that thing. I've repented, I've laid it down, so come on, I thought this was the part where you come through, you restore things, you restore hope, you, you fill my heart to overflowing, you heal me, you deliver me. But Peter said this, and this just really struck me this week, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. In other words, how we understand slowness. The Lord is not slow how we, uh, in keeping his promise. Instead, he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Um, in recent years, I guess I've begun to take a little bit more notice of changes in my life as a result of a repentant heart. So whenever um, I, I kind of go, okay, God, I need to lay that thing down before you, and you know, God um, prunes me a bit, and, and, and it leads to some, some level of repentance, um, it's usually when I've already forgotten about that, like sometimes years down the line, that I go, oh, I now see the positive effect in my relationship with God, my relationship with others, because of that decision and those decisions I made. It's not usually the day after, the day after, the week after, or the month after. It's usually years down the track when I've forgotten about it already. And ultimately, the same is true of sin, unfortunately. Rarely do I, you and I, let sin creep into our lives, and then the next day we're suffering the consequences. Now, sometimes that's the case. But with the, the more subtle sins of the heart, the pride in our heart, it's usually not until weeks and months later that that kind of thing can have an effect. And sometimes, and this is the key point that I hope that we take away with us today, that I know I need to take away with me today, the impact of our sin on the one hand or our honouring God, our repentance on the other hand, is generational. It may not affect us or our children or even our children's children, but it may affect generations beyond us. And I think this can actually motivate us to turn to God wholeheartedly even more than just something that's going to have an impact on our lives. Uh, I mean, you might go, well, I don't know if I can think that long term, that decisions I make now are going to affect my kids' kids and, and their kids' kids. But I think that it can because we love our kids. Who's got kids? Do you love them? <laughs> Who's got grandkids? Do you love them? Sometimes, maybe even a little bit more. No, 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 I didn't say that. Uh, we love our kids. We love our grandchildren if we're lucky to have them. And if you haven't uh, been able to have kids, though, or, or not at that point, the same applies to spiritual children, Those the, the investment you have made into the life of another person. You and I, our living in sin or our living in holiness, can have a deep impact on their lives, generations down the line, even greater than the impact it might have on your own. I am so grateful for the faith of my grandma, my nana, um, that her choices to live a life of prayer, how God saved her and has brought her into a relationship and, and her prayer. Because I think that it's changed my life as much or more than it's changed her life, if I'm honest. 
Same with my my mum. We see the same thing in scripture with generational impact. Maybe you're the same. Maybe you know it was a praying grandma or a praying grandfather or, or mother or father who's it's impacted your life. But the greatest risk for a third or fourth generation Christian or even a second generation Christian sometimes is complacency. Because we go, well, I just accept it. I didn't have to sacrifice for it. That was the generations before, so we take it for granted. The same goes for a post-Christian society or a post-Christian culture, which Mark Sayers describes as enjoying all of the benefits of the Christian worldview and the Christian approach to humanity, but with a rejection of the Christian God. And that's where we are now. We live in a sort of a post-Christian society with all the blessings of honoring God are among us, but more and more we reject the God who brought us all of those blessings. Eventually, when God is optional, it's then the generations after that will feel the effects of rejecting him. Something that really stood out to me and that I want to close with this week, as I was studying Isaiah 1-39, to was towards the end. So uh, you might have heard me say last week that um, one key thing that happens is that one of the, a new king comes in for Judah. His name's King Hezekiah. And he's the king who turns to God at first. He goes, God, I pray to God. We seek you to rescue us, God. And, and that's a good thing. Um, God uses Babylon to then rescue them. But then Hezekiah turns away again. He goes, thanks, God. But now I think we need to go to the Babylonians to save us and to protect us and to look after us. And so it's the, the fall then of Hezekiah, which leads to the fall of Jerusalem and leads to the Babylonian exile. And what I learned this week and what jumped out at me was that this happens, the exile, in chapters 20, that should say 24 to 25 of 2 Kings. Now, if you throw out an Old Testament scripture reference at me normally, I'm terrible with that. There's no, you know, what happens in Genesis 19? Wouldn't have a clue. Whatever, you know, I have to look it up, right? I don't have a great you know, knowledge of which references are which stories. However, there are one or two passages I know what happens, and one of them is 2 Kings 22 and 23, because it's the story of Josiah. And I happened, I, I named one of my, we named one of our sons after King Josiah. So I know what happens in that story. Here's why this really struck me. Josiah was a king at a time when the Israelites had turned away from God, young king, and, and Josiah, upon rediscovering the early scriptures, brings the people back. He cre- there's a reform that happens, and his reform creates the culture and the atmosphere that would produce people like Daniel with a heart for God. He restores, Josiah restores a kingdom that will essentially lead to Jesus. But what he does, what Josiah does, this reform, it doesn't save the people from God's judgment due to the sins of the people from decades earlier. It doesn't save people from what's going to happen in chapters 24 and 25. The major impact of that still came into effect, and then the major impact of Josiah's reform took many more years to really come into effect. And, and why this stood out to me is this time involved, that however we respond to God, in sin or in holiness, in sin or in repentance in rebellion or in obedience. It won't always happen like that, the impact of God releasing his presence back to us. And this is deeply challenging, 
but hope-filled and encouraging for me. I want to see God's kingdom come in a mighty way in this generation. I want to see young, faith-filled leaders like Daniel rise up, even in this church, to change history. I want to, I want to be able to be just a small part of that, to help create that atmosphere for that to happen like Josiah did. I want to see a hunger for God all around me that truly breaks the chains of exile in this generation, in this nation releasing people into abundant life in Jesus. But if I don't see that, if I don't see revival in my lifetime, if I don't get to see a change, a renewal in the church like my heart longs for as a result of being on my knees, and if you don't get to see this city, this nation turn around, this church even, it doesn't mean that our choice to honour him is in vain because even if I don't see it in my generation, even if you don't see it in your children's generation, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And if my children's children and their children experience an era where God does not withhold his presence in judgment, but releases his kingdom in power because we prayed and we fasted and we sacrificed and we said, God, we seek you. We turn back to you when everyone else is turning away. If the impact is not until my kids' kids or beyond, then that's good enough for me. Maybe I don't have to see it. Maybe, maybe revival doesn't need to be in this time, but that doesn't mean we stop praying. That doesn't mean we stop seeking him and turning to him. Even then, even if it doesn't happen before Jesus comes back, the bottom line is this. We've only had the warm-up act before the real thing with Jesus coming and walking this earth. The real hope we're waiting for is nothing that could happen on this earth while it remains as it is. The real hope we're waiting for, that we're living for, is the new Jerusalem. It's the new city. It's the new creation. When Jesus comes and makes all things new again. Amen? When he makes all things new, his return. So my prayer, my repentance, my fleeing temptation, all of those things. You're living a holy life. You're sacrificing for the sake of others. You're honoring God in obedience to him. All of it. Never is it in vain. It's preparing you for an eternity, an eternal reality still to come. So we hold on to this hope with patience. With patience. Patient hope that Jesus will make all things new. And in the meantime... He does hear your prayers. He does see your repentance. He does know your heart. And that's, I had some other stuff I was going to say today, but I think we just need to finish there. Just as a reminder, just to, to be assured that that choice you made last week, to lay that thing down, that that idol that you know needs to be destroyed, that thing that you're giving over to God in your heart, that thing you're turning away from and making a choice to follow him daily, it is worth it. Even if you don't see right now the impact it's going to make in your life and the life of others, turning to him right now to say, as Isaiah said, here I am, God, send me. Here I am, use me. Here I am, God. Here I am, I want to be obedient to you right now. It is worth it. Father, I pray that this morning, as we, your people, gather in this space and say, here we are, God. Use us. Here we are. Send us. Here we are, Lord. We want to be obedient to you right now. We want to make a choice to honor you right now, Lord, that even if we may not see the impact of that for generations to come, 
it will be worth it. And Lord, we will receive our reward in heaven. We will find our hope in you when the new creation is established, when heaven comes to earth. Jesus, we look to you as our hope and our only hope. And we make a choice today to follow you. We say, God, here we are. Here I am, Lord. I'm available for you. Just in this moment of worship, I just pray that and ask you to uh, just let God have whatever's on your heart that's distracting you, that's taking your attention away from him, and just to say, God, have it. Lord, I hand it over to you. I burn that idol. I smash that idol, that thing that is blocking me from you. Just spend a moment, just you and God, to give that over to him and let his love, his grace be poured out on you.